Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. Happy New Year. Healthy New Year to all of you. The start of 2012. Today, we're continuing our series on psychedelic medicine. For those of you tuning in for the first time, this is perhaps the longest series on psychedelic medicine that has ever been presented to a listening audience on air in this country. Many of you know that we've had programs on MDMA with Dr. Michael Midhofer, Psychedelic Explorer's Guide with Dr. James Fadiman, a uh, program on ayahuasca with Dr. Dennis McKenna, and on and on. Today, it is my distinct privilege to bring to you two scientists from the University, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Maryland, Dr. Roland Griffiths and Dr. Catherine Ann McLean. They are the ones that you may have read about who have received so much attention for their groundbreaking psilocybin research. About a month ago, I hosted uh, two panels at the uh, at an international conference, uh, 25th anniversary of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. At the conference, there were scientists from around the United States, actually some from Europe and South America as well, presenting their uh, research. There aren't too many scientists around the world, certainly not in this country, who have research on psychedelic medicine because the United States government has made it extremely uh, difficult to, uh, for university professors, uh, rigorous scientific folks, to do research. And that is uh, most unfortunate. Uh, we heard stories, for example, at the conference from one 70-year-old scientist who talked about how it took 10 years to get uh, one uh, protocol through the government in order to get permission to do research. And she talked about how the government made her build a bunker to put the medicine in, which had to be 12 inches of concrete in all four directions plus the ceiling. And after she built this concrete bunker for the medicine, they then said that the back wall of the bunker adjoined another building and they made her put a three inch plate of steel on the back wall of the bunker. So she came to them then and she said, okay, I built the bunker and I put up the steel wall. Can I now have my permission to go ahead with my research? And they said, no, you have to put in surveillance cameras around the bunker. So she put in the surveillance cameras and then she went back to them and said, can I go ahead now? And they said, no, you have to hire armed guards. And one of the other scientists who was on the panel, he said, the exact same thing happened to me. I had to go out and hire armed guards to stand around a bunker that had surveillance cameras around it. Uh, that's an example of, of what folks, uh, scientific folks, uh, have to go through in order to proceed with their research. It reminded me of a time when I was teaching at the University of Michigan and a prominent um, scientist, uh, Professor uh, Ernest Hilgard, came and gave a lecture on his research in hypnosis. 
And, um, and he talked about the f fact that uh, he had just, in, in recent years, gotten into doing research in hypnosis after establishing a, a whole a career as a, quote, rat psychologist. And um, so, you know, after his talk, I went over to him and I said, you know, what, what's, what's the story here? I mean, you, you, you spent your entire career, you know, being an, an animal uh, laboratory uh, scientist. And now, you know, you're, you're, you're at this stage in your career, you're doing hypnosis research. Well, well, tell me something about that. And he said, Richard, if I would have gone into hypnosis research as a young man, I never would have gotten anywhere. There are certain topics that you just don't go into if you want to advance yourself in academia. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is because people like Dr. Roland Griffiths and Dr. Catherine McLean are really taking, in my opinion, a huge risk with their careers by, by doing this kind of research. Because we live in a world where if you do research, as Hilgard pointed out, in hypnosis, or if you do research in psychedelic medicine, you can come under various kinds of scrutiny, uh, and uh, whether it's with the U.S. government or with your own academic uh, colleagues. And so these folks, you know, are really to be applauded for, for doing the research and bringing the information to us. Um, as a way of, of telling you a bit more um, about this research before I actually start the interview with them, let me read something to you that was written by Dave Nichols. Remember Dave Nichols? He was on uh, our program uh, a few weeks ago. He's uh, at the uh, Department of Medicinal Chemistry and Molecular Pharmacology at Purdue University. Here's what Dave had to say about um, Roland and Catherine's research. The article by Griffiths at Al is in this issue of psychopharmacology should make all scientists interested in human psychopharmacology sit up and take notice. It is the first well-designed, placebo-controlled clinical study in more than four decades, four decades, to examine the psychological consequences of the effects of the hallucinogenic psychedelic agent known as psilocybin. In fact, one would be hard-pressed to find a single study of psychedelics from any earlier era that was as well done or as meaningful. Perhaps more importantly, despite the notion by many people that psychedelics are nothing more than troublesome drugs of abuse, the present study convincingly demonstrates that when used appropriately, these compounds can produce remarkable, possibly beneficial effects that certainly deserve further study. That's Dave Nichols. Now, here's another comment, more than a comment, it's an article, by Harriet DeWitt. She's with the Department of Psychiatry. She hasn't been on our program yet, but maybe will. Department of Psychiatry at the University of Chicago. Harriet says, people have long sought meaning and significance in their lives through a variety of spiritual practices, including prayer, fasting, chanting, solitude, and meditation. Historically, some of these practices have included the use of certain psychoactive plants. A common theme of these experiences, with or without the aid of psychoactive agents, has been to free oneself of the bounds of everyday perception and thought in a search for universal truths and enlightenment. To a large extent, this type of subjective and uniquely human experience 
has enjoyed little credibility in the mainstream scientific world and thus has been given little scientific attention. However, it may be time now to recognize these extraordinary subjective experiences, even if they are, at present, not directly verifiable by objective measures. And then she goes on to say that the article by Griffiths et al. describes one of the first attempts to study these experiences in a systematic scientific investigation. And she goes on to applaud the, the study. She talks about how it's rigorous, how it includes controlled double-blind administration, how it um, was the first study, it was conducted in a specifically designed environment, and on and on. And there are more articles applauding this research and the rigor of the research. So with that introduction, welcome Dr. Roland Griffiths and welcome Dr. Catherine McLean to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Pleased to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation, Richard. It's a great opportunity to communicate directly with the public. So where shall we begin? What's the beginning of this story of this groundbreaking research on psilocybin? Well, I can, I can give you a little bit of historical uh, perspective into how we initiated this work um, now over, over 10 years ago. And, um, and that is that, uh, that I'm a psychopharmacologist at Johns Hopkins. That is, I study mood-altering drugs and had been doing so at Johns Hopkins for the last... 30 or more years, and um, about oh, 15 years ago, I took up a meditation practice that opened for me uh, a fascinating window into the nature of spiritual experience and, spirit, and got me asking questions about spiritual transformation and, and became very intrigued with uh, meditation and the nature of spirituality and comparative religion in a way that um, I never had been before. And, um, of course, I was studying uh, mood-altering drugs at the time, mostly uh, drugs for their, of, uh, of abuse and, and drugs that uh, were problematic to people. And... Um, and so there wasn't an immediate connection until, of course, I was reminded of the of the work conducted back in the mostly 50s and 60s with the whole class of classic hallucinogens. That those are LSD-like serotonergically mediated hallucinogens, including <clears throat> uh, LSD and psilocybin and mescaline and DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, <clears throat> and. Uh, and recognizing that there had been at least one very seminal study from the 1960s, the so-called Good Friday experiment, in which psilocybin was said to have occasioned religious-like experiences in seminary students. <clears throat> what does that and, mean? What does that mean? Let me interrupt you, Roland, please. What does that mean when, when you say, use words like religious-like experience or what do you mean when you use the word spirituality? To please tell us. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, spirituality is uh, <clears throat> is one of those words that I use uh, frequently, and and actually choose not to 
defi- define. It's kind of this projective test that <laughs> that people end up projecting uh, whatever whatever their personal thoughts of spirituality are. But um, I, you know, what I can do is tell you about the primary mystical experience. Okay, and that's, and that's in fact what our research has um, uh, largely focused in on. Uh, and, and and let me just uh, tell you very quickly about the setting condition in which we give psilocybin, and then I'll describe the core of this experience, which is is really I think the what we find so interesting about these compounds, and and uh, and underscores what we believe is the potential therapeutic importance of of these compounds. So uh, we administer psilocybin to people who have been carefully screened. They're healthy uh, volunteers, except for the, the studies we're running in patient populations. Uh, they're they're um, psychologically healthy, which is uh, important, and they're well prepared for the sessions in that they meet for at least eight uh, contact clinical hours with um, uh, what we call a guide or a monitor who will be present with them throughout the session. In fact, we have two monitors throughout the session. And during sessions... Well, excuse me, people, let me let me just ask a quick question here, Roland. Wh- this study that you're talking about now, where the people had the, the eight uh, or so sessions before the the uh, the medicine was, was administered, when did this study take place? Well, let's see. So the the preparation has been true of all of our studies, but the first study we conducted was initiated in uh, about the year 2000. Okay. It was published in uh, 2006. Okay. And then since that time, we've, uh, and that was in healthy volunteers. It was a right. study in which we compared the acute effects of psilocybin with that of an active control drug, in this case it was methylphenidate or Ritalin. An active under, placebo, in other words. Yes, yes. under kind of uh, deeply blinded conditions that led people to believe that they could receive any number of different compounds, including psilocybin. And even the guides or monitors were blinded to those drug conditions. So we blinded this as deeply as we could. Yeah, for our listeners, please note that what we're talking about here is the importance that when you give a placebo of having the placebo do something, be what's called active. Otherwise, the subjects obviously can tell which ones are getting the medicine and which ones are getting the placebo, because if you, if you take something and absolutely nothing happens, then the subjects say to themselves, oh, I must be in the placebo group. And the people who get something and they feel something happening, they say, oh, I must be the ones getting the drug. And their understanding of that affects the study. So what, what Roland is saying here is that the, the, the subjects who got the placebo were given a placebo that had a, a, gave them a feeling so that neither group could tell who was on the actual medicine and who was on a placebo that had a feeling with it. Isn't that right? Yeah, and and yeah. furthermore, Richard, yeah. in this first group, everyone was hallucinogen naive. So so it was not as though someone had 
experience of this sort, and they, they of course, could tell the difference. Immediately they'd say, oh, yeah, this is psilocybin. Yeah. I've had this before. Yeah. Everybody was naive. But just to go back, so this study started in 2000. How long did it take you to get permission to do that study in 2000? How many years prior to that had you been uh, applying for permission and sending in your papers? Well, so unlike the... Uh, uh, the testimonies that you uh, described earlier in the hour, um, you know, we, we got approval relatively quickly. I, I would say over the course of a year, oh. we got approval both from the Food and Drug Administration, from uh, the DEA, but the, you know, the biggest hurdle was our uh, institutional review board at, at Hopkins. I would say, however, that we got scrutinized much more closely than I've ever been scrutinized for any study. And I've spent my whole career conducting clinical pharmacology studies with various drugs. So I have a lot of experience with at the institutional level and with FDA and, uh, and um, reflective of the cultural trauma that we sustained in the 60s that resulted in this backlash against these compounds. Uh, how were you, you scrutinized? Know, there was, a, there was a, a lot of reluctance. Yeah, how were you scrutinized? What's the oper- How do you define scrutiny? You said you got a, a lot more scrutiny. How, how, give us examples. Well, let's see. So the, uh, uh, the study uh, was reviewed by our IRB. It was sent out for external review, uh, which is unprecedented in my experience. It was reviewed... Uh, not only by our IRB, but by uh, administrative authorities within the institution, attorneys within the institution. Uh, it, it, on several occasions, uh, the study was suspended while other new questions were asked and additional reviews were sought. But, but uh, one thing that I <laughs> that I really want to say is I'm really actually very proud of Johns Hopkins for stepping forward on this because no uh, this was the first study to administer a classic hallucinogen to hallucinogen naive individuals and you know it was probably 35 or 40 years and Johns Hopkins could have taken the institutional protective position like you know why you know why should we put ourselves forward and risk that yes and in fact what they did is they 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 asked all the right questions i mean it would they they weren't unreasonable questions from where they were sitting and um they asked all the right questions and ultimately said okay uh the risks appear uh you know, not to be outweighed by the potential benefits, and and you may proceed. And when we were allowed to proceed with the first five volunteers, and then we needed to report back to them. So it was a very cautious but thorough evaluation. And we went forward, and, uh, you know, I think we've actually now seen a sea change. I mean, we have published now several articles in this area since we were approved. Charlie Grobe got approved, and and uh, other investigators have been approved for psilocybin uh, research. We've written uh, a major safety paper on how to conduct these uh, trials, what kinds of safeguards are needed. And so I think uh, 
right now the situation is vastly different than it was 10 years ago for academic scientists who would like to initiate this kind of research. They, they will be subject to the, uh, to the scrutiny of the DEA and the requirement that the uh, drug be kept under safe conditions uh, we we didn't have to build. Uh, well, we we already had a Schedule One uh, vault, uh, but um, but you didn't uh, have to build a concrete bunker with a steel plate in <laughs> the did, back, surveillance cameras, did. and bodyguards. And, yeah. Well, in fact, you know, our our uh, pharmacy is in our building. It is under camera control, and there are security guards. Uh, you know that uh, patrol the campus and the building. So, in fact, we. You know, fulfill all those uh, kinds of requirements. Yes, Catherine, uh, uh, how did you how did you come to get involved with this study with Roland? Uh, well, first, I want to say that uh, it's always great for me to hear the recap of the amazing work that Roland has brought about here at Hopkins, and I hope the readers really understand that it's true what he's saying that ten years ago nobody even thought that this kind of work would be possible, and the increase in interest both in research and clinical practice and in the public is huge. And I always kind of say that I feel like I was born at just the right time to graduate college, start grad school, and then be just about finishing up with my graduate work as Roland's research was uh, the first few papers were being published. Um, this was has always been a fascination for me, the intersection of neuroscience and psychology and what I call uniquely human pursuits, and I guess that kind of gets into the realm of spirituality, but also um, various altered states of consciousness that other animals may experience as well, but they certainly can't really tell us about them. And... I guess as a college student, I found all these ideas intellectually interesting, but was told by many people in the, in the field of psychology and neuroscience that um, I simply couldn't do this kind of research. And luckily, I found a few people at the University of California in Davis who uh, were excited to do a study of meditation. And Meditation also has seen a huge increase in research and clinical interest over the past 10 years. But even at that time, meditation was also seen as a fringe topic in academia. Uh, luckily, if you put enough smart people on a particular research topic, no matter if there's any reasonable you know, credibility to the topic, and you put enough kind of smart minds on figuring out the right questions to ask and the right way to do the study, I think you get good results. So that was my experience as a grad student working on a long-term study of intensive meditation training. But while you were working on this meditation training, it was your opinion that back in 2000, it would be virtually impossible to do a research study at the university level on psychedelic medicine. Oh, absolutely. And I was told that by every single person that I respected along the way. Let me, let me, I want to make a political commentary here for our, for our listeners. Dr. Catherine Ann McLean, who ju you just heard say that back in 2000 she, she felt that it would have been virtually impossible to do university research on psychedelic medicine. Catherine Ann McLean is the winner of the Benner Award. It's the best oral thesis presentation uh, at Psychological and Brain Sciences Department at Dartmouth. She was a Phi Beta Kappa at Dartmouth, 
She, she had a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. She was a magna cum laude with high honors uh, from Dartmouth. She has a PhD from the University of California, and she's a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. This is a highly educated person telling us that in her opinion, back in 2000, it would have been virtually impossible to do scientific research at the university level in the United States of America. This is, right. a, this is very I'm important for us all to be aware of and also to realize the importance of the study that we're talking about today and what a breakthrough it is. Please go on, Catherine. Well, I would say it is certainly a breakthrough what Roland has accomplished at Hopkins. It's probably possible that it couldn't have happened anywhere other than Hopkins and with anyone other than Roland leading the research because of his extensive experience, as he said, with the, at the institutional level and with uh, research with psychoactive compounds. Um, but, you know, you kind of concerned me earlier. I always get a twinge of, um, of fear when someone reminds me that young people shouldn't be putting their careers on the line with research on psychedelics. So I guess I'm also, despite having found some level of success in this area, uh, it still is a huge risk. And I think that you were right on in the beginning when you said that. It's a huge but risk, But the positive Catherine. side of it is that I think sometimes these areas of research attract, um, because they attract such scrutiny, it forces scientists to be extra careful and uh and basically bring to bear all of the possible what-if questions as they're designing the research. So you can end up with actually some of the better research in a given field uh, as a result of, you know, that intense scrutiny and the risk factor, I guess. Yes, yes. The, the scrutiny can bring on greater rigor, but at the same time, I have to tip my, I, I do tip my hat to you for, for the courage to, to go into this kind of research, because we both know you're taking a risk. We all know that. Well, to get back to your original question, how I ended up working on this research with Roland. Yes. Uh, when I was finishing up my work at UC Davis, uh, there was this, um, this huge study that we did, uh, various faculty members and research assistants at within the UC system. It was called the Shamata Project, and it was a, a study of a three-month intensive meditation retreat. Sixty people gave up their lives for three months at a time to live in Colorado and meditate every day for 10 hours a day. And we studied their every, you know, every kind of brain measure you could think of, computer tasks, questionnaires. We collected their saliva. We collected their blood. It was a huge undertaking, and we're still kind of working through all of that data. Uh, but the initial findings were positive that meditation improves cognition and concentration and well-being. And around that time, as I was kind of wrapping up that work, uh, Roland's first two papers had been published and um, kind of, I guess, Roland can share from his perspective, or it's not really necessary, but my, uh, it was kind of a shot in the dark that I emailed Roland and kind of made my plea for why my research background in psychology and studying meditation should be relevant to the area of psychopharmacology, which literally at the time I had no experience in. And so the last two years have really been a kind of second graduate school for me in learning the way to do psychopharmacology research in a rigorous fashion. Uh, so I feel very lucky, and 
you know, every day at work is, uh, is a reminder that I think you can pursue the right research if, you're kind of, if your heart and mind are in it. Thank you. Let's go back to Roland now in the study. Where, 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 bring us back to where we were. With, um, go ahead, right. So, so as I was saying, we, we carefully prepare volunteers who have been uh, screened. And on the session day, they come into a room that is um, is reasonably aesthetically designed as a in like a living room like situation in which uh, there's a couch and chairs and uh, nice wall hangings and rugs, and the volunteers uh, takes a a capsule with water because we're using. This is psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in the magic mushroom, but this psilocybin was actually synthesized by Dave Nichols, who you you uh, quoted from earlier in the hour. Yeah. Dave Nichols is probably the, he is, the preeminent uh, organic medicinal chemist uh, who, uh, who has focused his career on understanding the basic pharmacology of of the uh, hallucinogens. So Dave, Dave synthesized the psilocybin for you? He synthesized the psilocybin, so we're giving the pure compound. Yes. We know exactly what dose we're giving. Yeah, I had the good and, fortune of interviewing Dave on this program about a month ago, actually. Yes, yeah, yeah, you mentioned. And, um, and people take the capsule, and then they're invited to lay down on the couch. They, uh, they're encouraged to use eye shade, so they're going inward, and, and they, they're using headphones through which they're listening to a program of um, music, largely classical, some world music. Uh, and and it's, so it's a very introverted or inward-turning experience, and that's the nature of the experience. And, and we invite them then to simply go in and explore. So there's nothing guided about this experience other than what they have is two um, monitors who are, are sitting in the room, very often right by their couch, uh, that are there to provide support and a reminder of what <laughs> consensual reality might uh, might be like should they lose, lose bearing of that at the high dose of psilocybin that we administer, which is 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms. Um, 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms. That's, that's correct. Okay. So that's uh, about equivalent to about 5 grams of uh, dried mushroom of average, uh, average delivery. Okay. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very high dose of, of psilocybin. Um, now, that uh, psilocybin under these conditions, of course, produces all kinds of alteration and perceptual phenomena, you know, visual and auditory and tactile, and produces marked changes in mood and affect and thought processes. Um, and all that's been known about uh, the nature of, these, uh, of the effects of these drugs. What's most interesting to us is the fact that under these kinds of conditions where people are prepared well, they're safe, they're, uh, they're invited to turn inward with the experience, 
people end up having these experiences that we uh, that map on to to naturally occurring mystical type experiences, and I'm going to define that for you in just a second. Thank these you. are experiences that have been reported by mystics and religious figures uh, throughout the ages and have been uh, carefully described in the, uh, in the whole literature of, uh, of psychology of religion, starting with William James in the early 1900s. And, um, and uh, there have been measures developed for actually assessing what kinds of domains uh, are increased when people have these kinds of experiences. So they're, they're very well described in spite of the fact that that seems unlikely. And, that, and then, so the major features of this experience that we have about 70% of our volunteers endorsing are one, and the, and the core feature is the interconnectedness of all people and things, the sense of unity that uh, all is one, uh, everything is interconnected. And that's accompanied by a sense of sacredness or reverence, sometimes described as awe, uh, also a sense that the experience is uh, more real and more true than everyday waking consciousness. There's a, a sense that there's a truth value to this experience that transcends ordinary reality. And then the other qualities of the experience are, are a sense of open-heartedness, sometimes described as love, uh, gratitude, peacefulness, a sense of transcendence of time and space where past and, uh, and future collapse into the present moment, and that's all there is, the present moment, and, and uh, space becomes boundless, and then, finally, a sense of ineffability, uh, a sense that one of the first things people say after having this kind of experience is, I can't possibly tell you what the experience was about. I can't put it into words because they just don't fit. And those are the core features to this primary mystical experience. And, um, and the remarkable thing about that is not only do they endorse that experience immediately after session, but at uh, two, one or two month follow-up and at more than a year follow-up, they continue to endorse that experience and they make attributions to that experience. They, they say that that experience has changed positively their attitudes about themselves, their lives, other people. They claim to be uh, more pro-social, more generous, more loving, uh, and uh, and uh, people will also claim to uh, make um, changes in their behavior uh, in accordance with that, so that they'll become they'll take up a meditation practice, for instance, or eat more healthily, or exercise. Uh, more regularly. It's this caretaking of self and others that emerges from this experience. So let me and see, so, if, let me just see if, uh, if I want to interrupt kindly. Yeah. You're saying that these subjects who had never taken a, the a psilocybin 
prior. They were totally naive subjects. They were administered five grams of mushrooms, of the, of the mushrooms, or five grams of the material, actually, that was, that was synthesized by, by uh, Dave Nichols. Well, it's 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms. 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms. Equivalent, equivalent of, of, of five, five grams, grams of mushrooms. Mushroom. Thank you for the clarification. 30 yeah. milligrams per 70 kilograms, or the equivalent of five grams of mushrooms. That they not only related, and I'm going to ask you to repeat, if you will, these effects at the t- right after the experience, but you're saying that a high percentage of what they related continued a one year later, following just this one administration, is that did I get that correct? Yes, let me uh, let me add some nuance to that. The, the experience, of course, is over at the end of the session, right. but the memory of the experience endures. Yes, and and the principal features this interconnectedness of all things, sacredness, the sense that is more true. There's a truth value to it, a sense of heart opening transcendence of time and space and ineffability, that whole package comes together as the mystical experience. And when people reflect back on that, they uh, they say their lives are changed, their change, their core sense of who they are has been changed and what they're doing in this world. Has changed, changed. and they report this a year later. Yes, more, more than a year later. Do they become? And, uh, do they and, become? And furthermore, Catherine did a very interesting study that she uh, she may be able to describe to you that in which their personality has been shown to be changed. I want to hear that. Well, question: Do these people, because of this remarkable change that they've experienced after one administration of a medicine, do they become evangelical? I would think they would. Uh, interestingly, uh, no. Uh, we have, we have administered the drug under very well-prepared and, and, and sacramental conditions or or conditions that approach sacramental use. Yes. And, and it's an experience that they, um, uh, they hold as, as pivotal, uh, to them. The idea, evangelical perhaps in the sense that what they believe we're doing and they participated in is as important as anything that they've done. Exactly. That's what makes yeah. me think they'd yeah. want to go out and say to their friends and family, hey, you got to get a hold of some of this stuff because well, no, it's no, amazing. No, so that, <laughs> because that's, that's how they, human, human beings are like that. You know, you go to the store and get something good and you like <laughs> it. You go tell your friends, right? Yeah, but that, that, that wouldn't necessarily follow because... Uh, I think they they feel, and right, rightfully so, I mean, we know that if people take five grams of dried mushrooms, some people will have remarkable experiences, other people will have terrible experiences, and some people are going to be thrown into harm's way, in, you know, because of fear or panic or anxiety, which is well, how not do we, uncommon, how do we know, among our conditions. How do we know there'll be the negative experiences if your subjects did not report negative experiences they did indeed so that oh they so did that, yes yes so oh i didn't hear that part i missed yeah that. well what i said is 70 percent of people experienced mystical experience about 30 percent have experiences now and this isn't um you know mutually exclusive people can have experiences of great fear or anxiety and have a mystical experience as well yes um, 
But about 30% of people will endorse having experiences of great fear or anxiety, as fearful as something that they've ever experienced. And so I think there's an important footnote to this, and that is even after hours and hours of preparation to giving this drug to highly screened participants under kind of optimized conditions with two people sitting at their side, we still have a 30% probability that they're going to experience extraordinary anxiety. What we know is under conditions in, in which people are not carefully monitored or selected, that some people end up panicking, you know, reacting to that fear. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, I wish I could say it hasn't happened, but it does happen that people end up running out into traffic or doing harm to themselves. Not your others. subject. Your subjects didn't do that. No, none of our subjects no. did. Well, okay. So, so, so let... we know we can do this safely under appropriate conditions. Yeah, let's stay uh, with you. Let's stay with your subjects and the ones who got anxiety and 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 uh, a sense of panic afterwards, both after the initial administration the next day or the day after, as you as you interviewed them, and then also that same group a year later. Do the, how did they look back on that anxiety and panic? What what was their what is their take on it or their view? Yeah, on it? It, it's it's a great question, uh, Richard, and and um, we. We actually haven't, although we've run about 100 subjects now, we don't have the power uh, to really tease apart um, what the long-term impact of that is. I can just tell you anecdotally that it's really variable across volunteers. So some volunteers will have extraordinary sense of, of panic that will actually open up then into transcendence. That's the and reason so, I'm so asking. It, becomes, it actually becomes a doorway through which they reach transcendence. Yeah, I mean, in, in my so own... They, excuse me. So in that sense, uh, they would really value that. We do have a smaller percentage of people who get caught in the classic bad trip uh, where they're, um, uh, they're in a period of anxiety or dysphoric uh, struggle yes for most for most of the session right the, now the important thing I would have to say about those people is none of them felt that they had been harmed by that experience that matches a, 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 an interview I did recently Roland of a man who who took a psychedelic medicine and for five and a half hours uh, he was he was screaming and yelling and anxious and panicked and when i interviewed him the next day he said yeah the people around me thought it was terrible but i felt like i was going through something very important and i have no regrets about it whatsoever in fact i feel like i mastered the anxiety by going through it and getting into it and then coming out of it well that's that's exactly right so under oh. under these conditions when it can be supported well People often feel that it's a it's a growth experience. So no one felt that they were harmed. There were people that would say, "I I would never ever ever want to ha- have that experience again." <laughs> but interestingly, we've never had uh, in our healthy normal volunteer. We've never had um, a volunteer drop out of the study, even though they had subsequent sessions scheduled 
because they had an adverse, you know, yeah. a, a difficult experience. So that's actually, so, it makes it, it, it sounds very similar to patients of mine who are not taking any medicine whatsoever, but who have anxiety and, and panic. And when we get, go through it together and they learn tools for dealing with it, they then have a sense of mastery and they feel like it, uh, they don't want to call the anxiety and panic, say, quote, a good thing. But the fact that they now have a sense of mastery and confidence over it is a good thing. So they are no longer fearful of it happening again. Yes. But it, but it, it, it does un- underscore the risk of taking these compounds under conditions in which uh, one is not optimally uh, supported. And oh, we know, you know, a lot of um, recreational use happens under those conditions. Oh, well, yeah. I differ, the way I differentiate that, Roland, is that, is that what you're doing is administering a medicine, and when people take it on their own, they're taking a drug. Right. And that's, right. that's how I differ. You know, it's, one is called drug use and the other is called taking a medicine under proper protocol and conditions. Right. Does right. that, you know, does I, that I, sit I with you? Just, uh, jump in here for a second. Please. I've been thinking that the analogy that makes sense, I think, to a lot of people um, is the idea of going in for a surgery. And whereas the psychedelic experience, the potential benefits and the potential risks are psychological, not physical, for a surgery, you might have a huge potential benefit, but certain risks that may come up acutely during the surgery. And it's not something that you would want to necessarily undertake on your own. You want (laughs) the right kind of medical safety, and you want the experts who can guide you through those potentially risky scenarios. Of course, all of that is physical, not psychological. And then you'd want the follow-up afterward to make sure that the risks, if there were any lingering effects, had been minimized. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it makes some sense to people when they're thinking, why would you ever want to go through something where there's risk involved? And it's a, it's a matter of kind of balancing the potential benefits with the acute risks and any kind of, you know, lingering, uh, you know, kind of cognitively working through the, the experience that you've had. I think that's a great analogy, actually, Catherine. I mean, I mean if anybody can just grasp onto that and say, sure, I, I would let a surgeon cut open my stomach and go inside and, and do some work, but I'm sure not going to sit at home and cut open my stomach, or at least most of us <laughs> won't, right? And, and that's why, that's, you know, it's a dramatic but great example of, of, yes, this is a very powerful medicine and used under, under proper conditions. It is a medicine, but, you know, go home and take it at home and, and you might be cutting your stomach open and having to deal with anxiety and panic on your own. Or as, as Roland said, maybe there are some examples of people, I don't know of any, but per, perhaps there are examples on record of people walking into traffic. Do you actually know of an example of that, Roland? Uh, yes, unfortunately I do. I mean, and, and people um, jumping off of cliffs and off of buildings. And you have examples of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, then, yeah. you know, then, then the caveat emptor folks who are listening, yeah. very much so. So, um, go ahead, Richard. One uh, one thing I think it'd be very interesting for Catherine to talk about the personality change, and then I hope we'll have uh, a chance to just mention our cancer study, which okay. is a very interesting offshoot of this research. Okay, cut to Catherine. We got ten minutes, folks. Let's do it. Okay. So the the brief story about personality is that psychologists have come up with a way of kind of categorizing the general tendencies a given person has for thinking and feeling and acting in the world. And they've kind of come up with general areas or factors 
that you can be high or average or low in. And one of these areas is called openness. And people who are high in openness tend to be creative. Uh, It's linked to intelligence, kind of problem solving, uh, being sensitive to yours and others' feelings, and and generally kind of being open to new ideas and being more flexible with approaching new situations. What we found more than a year after the single psilocybin session, Roland mentioned the first study, there was also a second study where in addition to the highest dose that was given in the first study, people experienced other dose levels. But looking at just the single session where they had the highest dose, we saw an increase in openness and none of the other aspects of personality. And that increase persisted for the for up to a year, more than a year after the session in the people who had had this classic mystical experience that Roland described. So essentially in the people who... Um, you might have someone who had changes in uh, time and space, but no feeling of sacredness. Uh, that wouldn't be kind of the, the full package. The people who basically had the full package of mystical experience uh, were still reporting a year later increases in this area of openness. And the, the, the measurement that we used was a traditional measure of personality in psychology where you're basically answering, you know, over 200 questions that describe you, basically agreeing or disagreeing about whether that question describes who you are. And so it's, it's more than self-report. It's not just people saying, I feel more creative, I feel more interested in art and music. It's their collective response to all of those different openness items scattered throughout the instrument. And this was pretty surprising because personality, although some researchers think it can change in adulthood, after significant life experiences or big changes in your life, personalities generally seem, seem to be stable after about the age of 30. So there's some change that happens in your teen years and when you, if you go to college or leave home and are kind of finding yourself. But by the time you're about 30 years old, your personality has somewhat solidified. And we saw increases in openness that were larger than you might expect even over, you know, decades of life experience, if you were kind of to extrapolate a potential growth curve that people might be on. And they, they were still there, you know, a year later. So it seems, it seems fairly permanent in openness. at least the people that we studied. Openness is an interesting word. How did you operationally define openness again, please? Well, luckily we have a whole field of psychology called personality psychology that had already operationalized openness for us. And... Openness has different aspects or facets. One aspect is fantasy, imagination. Uh, another facet is kind of intellectual curiosity, or the, the name is called ideas, but it's essentially problem-solving, intellectual curiosity, abstract thinking. Another area is aesthetics, so interest in art and music. Uh, another area is called feelings, so that's sensibility, toward yours and others' feelings. Uh, empathy would kind of fit in there. And let's see. So openness, oh, openness. there are two others, but the other two are um, more about kind of um, practical things. So, you know, do you like to try new foods or um, would you tend to vote liberally or more conservatively, that kind of thing on social issues? So it's an openness in the sense of a kind of expansion or broadening of one's 
experience in life. It's not necessarily openness in terms of, say, transparency and revealing everything about oneself. Right. That's a good distinction. It is, it is more broad-mindedness and approaching new situations in a creative and flexible way. Um, it's, it's kind of more of a motivational tendency. So which things that you seek out and how do you respond to new situations? Do you think that's why anecdotally these, these substances have been referred to as consciousness expanding, that this, yeah, that's how it happens sort of on the street because of this experience? It is certainly, if you look at the domain of openness, it's certainly one of the strongest anecdotal, um, re- basically reports that uh, both recreational users and people in the early uh, clinical, uncontrolled clinical trials would report. Uh, you kind of, you see these reports of increases in interest in art and music, creativity, and being, you know, kind of pursuing things that you wouldn't normally pursue before your experience. And so I think anecdotally it certainly fits with what we're seeing now with this kind of, with this controlled instrument. Would, now, um, uh, I would Catherine, add... Did the, Catherine, did the, did, the, um, did the subjects who were in the 30% uh, that Roland described, the 30% who had difficulties, be it anxiety, panic, etc., did those subjects also have this sense of openness uh, in your study? Well, as Roland mentioned, sometimes people would have both anxiety and fear and a mystical experience. And so the group that we focused on, the distinction that we made in the openness report was between people who had had a full mystical experience and those who had not, but not necessarily the people who had had anxiety and fear and those who had not. So it could be that some of the people who were in the group who changed in openness were people who experienced anxiety and fear. I think the important thing is, uh, Roland mentioned this, that we actually meet with people the day after the session, and in our current study, for example, we have several meetings with some of the participants after their session, and a lot of that is helping people to work through the acute effects and the experiences that they had on the drug and how that may affect their lives in a more holistic way. I think that piece is also potentially missing from uh, uncontrolled recreational use. Well, I I think one of the takeaways, and please both of you correct me if I'm mistaken here, but it sounds like one of the takeaways for our listeners uh, is that if they were to take uh, this medicine as a recreational drug rather than a medicine in, in these properly controlled conditions, they stand about a one out of three chance of having a negative experience. Well, and possibly higher. This one out of three is under our optimized conditions in which people are really well screened and well prepared. Yes. So. Yeah, yes. the piece that I wanted to add about openness, and we're interested in exploring this uh, further, is that you know this was an increase in people who are already high in openness, but also psychologically healthy and well-educated, and there's a, it's a particular demographic that showed this increase. Uh, it's possible that you could have increases in openness without a stable foundation that would not be beneficial. And so just being higher in openness does not necessarily mean it's a good thing. Uh, it's always important to understand, I think, the context of the research that any of the benefits that we're seeing are, uh, are restricted to the sample that we studied and which is why we're so excited to 
expand into other uh, into other patient populations and demographics to see again what the kind of balance of benefit and risk is. You know, that's and exactly. So now, Roland, you should talk about the cancer before the okay. cancer study. Before Roland, you got one minute to to tell <laughs> us about the cancer study, and then we're going to have to run one up. one minute. So got we it. we have an active protocol that we're recruiting nationally for. These are in cancer patients who are experiencing anxiety or depression because of a cancer diagnosis. We have travel grant program. If someone is unable to come out to Baltimore, we can pay their travel out or at least a portion of it. And if you have, if you're in that situation or you know of someone in that situation, uh, please have them or take a look at our website and that website address is www.cancer-insight.org. That's www.cancer-insight.org, and that provides all the information. It's been it's a remarkable protocol, uh, a remarkable opportunity for people who are distressed because of their cancer to get novel insight into who they are, what they're doing, and what what in the world <laughs> is this uh, disease process about. Any kind of cancer, Roland? Any kind of cancer, as long as it's potentially life-threatening. Ah, okay. And, it, uh, and it, there can be no CNS involvement. So if there are metastases to the brain, uh, we would have to exclude someone. Folks, I hope you hear that. We're going to have to wrap up. He's saying www.cancer-insight.org. If you know someone who has cancer uh, that is potentially life-threatening, have them look up that website. And uh, there's a great opportunity here. I'm sorry to be rushing, Catherine and Roland, but uh, I'm getting signals here that we've got to wrap up. I thank you both very much for, for taking the time from your busy lives to, uh, to present this information to our listening audience. And I hope uh, that I have the opportunity to have you both on the program in the future and uh, tell us about uh, your up-to-date uh, research. Thank you very much, Richard. You're welcome, Thanks. Roland. Thank you, Catherine. Take care, both of you. Well, folks, that was, uh, that was quite a program. Uh, uh, thank you to, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by KZYX and uh, my engineer, uh, Mike Delora, sitting right here. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock California time when we're going to have a uh, panel of therapists on handling anything and everything in family therapy and relationship that you want to call in about. We have a prominent nationally recognized panel. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.